Pope Benedict XVI begins his trilogy, Jesus of Nazareth, with what he calls a brief initial reflection on the mystery of Jesus. And the key to understanding the figure of Jesus, Benedict proposes, lies not in the New Testament, but in the Old, in the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 8.15. Moses there promises the Israelites that God will one day raise up a prophet like me from among you. Like Moses, this prophet will, will, will be one whom the Lord knows face to face, as one friend knows another. Yet the friendship with God of this future prophet will be even greater than that of Moses, who after all only saw God's back, even though he spoke with God in the obscurity of the cloud that covered Mount Sinai with the intimacy of a friend. To this new Moses, this last prophet, Pope Benedict says, will be granted what was refused to the first one, a real immediate vision of the face of God, and thus the ability to speak entirely from seeing and not just from hearing or for, from looking as Moses did only at God's back. Jesus' teaching, but also his action and suffering have their ultimate source in Benedict's understanding in, quote, this immediate contact with the Father, the vision of the one who rests close to the Father's heart, the vision he possesses, a vision in which, quote, Jesus' human consciousness and his will, his human soul, end quote, are fully involved. The dictum of the Protestant historian of dogma, Adolf von Harnack, early in the 20th century, that Jesus teaches only of the Father and makes no claims about himself, is therefore, in Benedict's understanding, self-refuting. What Jesus teaches about the Father would be presumptuous, indeed blasphemous, unless it came from a unique, indeed unsurpassable intimacy with the Father, a face-to-face -face vision. As Benedict goes on to say, Jesus approaches his baptism then, already possessing a full awareness of his identity and his mission. His grasp of who he is stems from this human vision of the face of the Father, which makes him the promised prophet, greater than Moses. Jesus thus enters the depths of the Jordan in his baptism, knowing that he is the unsurpassable prophet, the final mediator between God and humanity. In those depths, he deliberately begins our redemption, the binding of the strong man that will culminate in his passion, death, resurrection, and glorification. Benedict, Benedict links all this to a high estimate of the historical value of the fourth gospel, and in particular, the words Jesus speaks according to John. Pope Benedict thus seems to embrace the traditional theological claim that Jesus already enjoyed the immediate vision of God in his human soul in his earthly life prior to his resurrection, and indeed prior to his baptism. Benedict's acceptance of this claim seems, in fact, to be quite deliberate, inasmuch as it serves as the initial key for everything he will go on to say about Jesus. All of the words, deeds, and sufferings of the Lord spring 
from this unsurpassable human vision of God, this unsurpassable human immediacy with God. The Pope speaks in biblical terms, as he always does, and does not touch on the scholastic concepts in which the claim is traditionally made that Jesus, well before his resurrection and glorification, has that human vision of God than which a greater cannot be conceived. But it is not much of a stretch to read the opening chapter of Jesus of Nazareth as an endorsement of the traditional view that Jesus has the beatific vision throughout his earthly life. Jesus said, a man's enemies will be those of his own house. And Benedict was to discover that the truth of this prophecy extends even to the papal household. Shortly after the Pope's book was published in 2007, Father Raniero Cantalamesa, the longtime preacher to the papal household, gave a public lecture in Rome in which he questioned the cogency of Benedict's whole approach to the mystery of Jesus. While expressing great appreciation for the Pope's book as an expression of the Church's faith in Jesus, Father Cantalamesa voiced the following, quote, small reservation. I think that the continuity between the Jesus of history and the Christ of the kerygma and of dogma, for all that it is real, is not quite as rectilinear as it is made to appear in the summary introduction to the book, end quote, Benedict's book. We must accept, Father Kentel Mesa argued, that, quote, Christians after Easter said greater and more important things about Jesus than the historical Jesus would have said about himself, end quote. Most exegetes and theologians have agreed with Father, Father Kentel Mesa's criticism of a rectilinear continuity in his phrase in Pope Benedict's book between Jesus in his earthly life and Jesus in his risen life. Few have been as gentle about it as the papal preacher was, especially when he attributes to Jesus a unique face-to-face -face vision of God even prior to his public mission. Most exegetes and theologians have found Benedict's interpretation of the mystery of Jesus exegetically and theologically unnecessary at best, there's no compelling reason for it, if not wholly implausible on historical and theological grounds. In the past 50 years or so, there have in fact been few Catholic exegetes who would see the claim that Jesus had the immediate vision of God in his earthly life as historically plausible or exegetically warranted to say nothing of Protestant biblical scholars. Systematic or dogmatic theologians have largely followed suit. Thus, in his later writings, Karl Rahner, with, as usual, various reservations, qualifications, and hypothetical hesitations, doubts that Jesus had the beatific vision during the course of his earthly life. With as usual, no reservations, qualifications, or hypothetical hesitations. Hans Urs von Balthasar likewise doubts it. <laughs> Many others, including Jean Gallot and Thomas Wynandy, think in similar terms. It is all right to believe that Jesus had the beatific vision from the moment of his resurrection, 
and indeed that he came to know the truth of everything that the Nicene Creed says about him. But for various historical, metaphysical, and soteriological reasons, which, while, which I will discuss in a few minutes, in the view of most exegetes and theologians, it is not all right to attribute any of this to Jesus up to the Triduum Mortis. There seem to be at least two motives at work for the current denial of Jesus' possession of the immediate vision of God, though these two motives, while distinct, regularly work in tandem and reinforce one another. One motive is historical and exegetical and liable to be invoked especially by biblical scholars. We cannot ascribe such a thing as the beatific vision or the immediate vision of God to Jesus in his earthly pre-resurrection life, the argument goes, because this would be to admit that Jesus' earthly life the life of the historical Jesus, as it is often put, is at this hardly trivial point inaccessible to historical knowledge. Or worse, such an attribution makes Jesus simply incredible to us as a real human being living under the known conditions, the conditions known to us of human historical existence. We cannot even imagine what it would be like for a human being to possess such knowledge, for a human being in our own space and time to possess this sort of immediate knowledge of God, let alone to assert that one actually has possessed it. Like the resurrection itself on this view, an immediate vision of God is simply not the sort of thing we can have ordinary, rational, historical grounds to assert to exist. It is permissible to ascribe it to Jesus at the resurrection because the resurrection is, as a matter of basic assumption on this outlook, the resurrection is the absolute dividing line between what historical reason can know about Jesus and what faith believes about him. But to give this vision to Jesus before his resurrection is to subvert the whole settlement of modern Catholic exegesis, post-conciliar Catholic exegesis in particular, whereby what faith believes about Jesus and what history knows about him are compatible with one another, but only when they are kept in discrete compartments. The second motive for this widespread denial in recent theology of Jesus' possession of the immediate vision of God is religious and theological rather than historical. This objection worries that ascribing the visio of God to Jesus in his human soul would undercut his solidarity with us, his identification with our condition. It would violate the rules of the soteriology of solidarity now widely taken for granted as necessary for meaningful Christian faith. In particular, it is assumed that ascribing the visio to Jesus in his earthly life would mitigate the reality of his suffering, and especially would mitigate the depth and the radicality of his suffering. However we understand that suffering, however we see it as constituting his identification or solidarity with us. 
And this is especially true for much recent theology of Jesus' abandonment on the cross. His cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With which Jesus' possession of the vision of God seems to many theologians flatly incompatible and which is often assumed, that is to say, Jesus' abandonment, abandonment is often assumed to be absolutely indispensable to his saving solidarity with us. So there is the problem. Now some history. Theological reflection on the nature and limits of Christ's human knowledge developed slowly in the Catholic tradition. Some New Testament texts strikingly suggest ignorance in Jesus' human soul or his human knowledge. One of these, and an especially important one, is Mark 13, 32, and this has been much discussed. The text reads, but of a day and the hour, the day or the hour, Jesus is speaking to his apostles about the last judgment, of the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In the fourth century debates about the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, these texts were used by Arian or quasi-Arian writers to argue against the full divinity of Christ. The Son himself says that he does not share the Father's full knowledge of things. Pro-Nicene theologians, that is, defenders of Nicaea, routinely then assign these passages to the humanity of the incarnate word and deny that they have any application to him in virtue of his divinity. So the full divinity of the Logos or Son is defended by ascribing a passage like that, the Son does not know the hour, to his human knowledge, not to his divine person. However, attributing to Jesus' humanity his apparent ignorance of important matters, like when the last judgment is going to happen, Although it was an obvious recourse in the fourth century debates, as I've just explained, was problematic when further reflection set in. As Christian reflection and understanding of the person of Christ and of the relation of his divine and human natures developed, it would begin to seem that this move, ascribing the ignorance text, if you like, to the human nature of Christ, well, surely right over against describing it to his divine nature, nonetheless creates large problems of its own. And that biblical texts about what Jesus doesn't know will have to be handled in some other way than by simply conceding ignorance to him when it comes to his humanity. Fobbing ignorance off on Jesus' human nature, in other words, will come to seem as damaging Christologically as finding it in his divine nature was damaging theologically, that is, in Trinitarian theology. The first Christian writer to reflect in a more than passing way on Jesus' human knowledge was evidently the North African bishop, St. Fulgentius of Ruspe, writing around the year 520. Letter 14 of St. Fulgentius is a long treatise in answer to a series of questions posed by his friend and student, Ferrandus of Carthage. One of these questions concerns whether Jesus knew his own divinity, 
And if so, how his human knowledge of the Trinity differs from the knowledge of the Trinity that belongs to the person of the word as such, that belongs to him in virtue of his divine nature. Fulgentius writes, naturally, in the wake of the still controversial Christological decisions of Ephesus and Chalcedon in the preceding century. Of their teaching, he is clearly aware, and he makes a deliberate effort to bring the content and logic of these conciliar decisions to bear on the specific question Ferrandus poses to him. Writing in the 17th century, the oratorian theologian Luis de Thomasine credits Fulgentius with having beautifully articulated, even at this early point in the tradition, the essential elements of proper teaching on Christ's human knowledge. Thomasine, or Thomasinus in its Latinized form, was a staggeringly learned student of the Church Fathers, and he was among the first to apply the explosion of patristic scholarship in the 17th century to standard theological topics in a thoroughgoing way, especially in Christology and Trinitarian theology. In his own elaborate discussion of what he calls the fullness of divine and blessed knowledge in the soul of Christ, his defense of the beatific vision in Christ's human soul, Thomasine takes his initial cues from this passage in Fulgentius' letter 14. The following observations on Fulgentius' views, however, are my own and not those of Thomasine. In responding to the question put to him about the nature and extent of Christ's knowledge, Fulgentius focuses strikingly on John 3.34. The Father, quote, does not give the Spirit by measure. Does not give the Spirit by measure. Following Augustine, specifically the Augustine of the Retratationes, Fulgentius argues that this text about the full and unmeasured gift of the Spirit can apply in its literal sense only to Christ himself. We, after all, do not possess a full measure of the Spirit. If this is not experientially obvious to you already, think of Elisha, who in the second book of Kings asks for a double measure of the Spirit given to his great master, Elijah. So if he can receive a double measure, even Elijah must not have had the full measure. Yet John's texts, the Father does not give the Spirit by measure, clearly supposes that someone does receive the full measure of the Spirit. What John says then, Fulgentius argues, can be true of, can apply only to Christ himself. Christ, however, does not receive the Spirit on account of or with respect to his divine nature. By virtue of his divinity, he gives the Spirit to others, and in fact, the Spirit receives being from him, not the other way around, in the eternal processions within God. Yet one and the same person who gives the Spirit also receives the Spirit, and that in full measure, Jesus Christ himself. So it must be with respect to his humanity and the depths of his human soul, Fulgentius argues, that Jesus Christ receives the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And as Fulgentius observes, quote, to the extent that the Spirit is given, to that extent knowledge of divinity is received. 
But where the spirit is not present by measure, not in a limited way, in other words, it is necessary that there be full knowledge of the immeasurable divinity. As the one who receives the spirit without measure, the human being, Jesus, must have the fullest possible human knowledge of divinity, of his own divinity, that is, the divinity of the eternal word to whom he is personally united, and equally of the divinity of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has, in other words, the human knowledge of God that brings blessedness, the beatific knowledge or vision of God. Though interestingly, Fulgentius only touches on this point, on the beatific or blessedness-conferring character of Jesus' knowledge indirectly. His main concern is to establish the extent of Christ's human knowledge and not, as later theologians would be concerned, to establish its implications, above all, beatitude. This pneumatological root, by way of the theology of the Holy Spirit, to the conclusion that Jesus has the fullest possible human knowledge of God in his earthly life, did not become the typical path to this conclusion. As we will see, later writers such as St. Thomas will favor more directly Christological argument. On a closely related point, however, the tradition will mostly be on just the same page as Fulgentius, even if not because they had necessarily read him. Our knowledge of God, in Fulgentius' view, our knowledge of God is a participation in the fullness of Jesus' own human knowledge. Our knowledge is a participation in his fullness of human knowledge, as our measure of the Spirit is a participation in his own full measure of the Spirit. Of his fullness we have all received, John teaches, and this applies to our human knowledge of God, to our human knowledge of God, as well as to our love or charity toward God. The evangelist statement applies, moreover, not only to our knowledge of God in this life, but above all, to our final blessedness. Of his fullness we have all received, when faith gives way to sight. If Jesus' human soul has less than the fullest possible knowledge of the Godhead, St. Fulgentius argues, then he too must participate in that fullness of knowledge as possessed by another in the same way that we do. As a result, he himself will not be the Christ, not be the one with the full measure of the Spirit, but will, like us, participate in Christ. If we wish to avoid this undesirable result, a Christ who is not Christ, we must accept that it is, and this is St. Fulgentius, it is thoroughly foreign to a healthy faith to say that the soul of Christ does not have the full knowledge of his own deity. Fulgentius makes uh, a third point that will prove to be of abiding importance in subsequent discussion of Christ's human knowledge. Even the fullest human knowledge of God, that in Christ's own human soul, is genuine creaturely knowledge and therefore inherently limited in comparison with God's own knowledge, at least in its mode, if not in its content. St. Fulgentius puts this point in an interesting way. When God knows himself, he is what he knows, and he knows this about himself. 
When Jesus' human soul knows God in an unsurpassably intimate way, he completely knows in a human way his own divinity, but his soul is not what it knows. And he grasps this about himself. His human soul is not the divinity that his human soul knows immediately. In the 6th century after Fulgentius, during the theologically momentous reign of the Emperor Justinian, a dispute broke out that was related to this question of Christ's human knowledge. In the Eastern Christian world, between non-Chalcedonian or Monophysite followers of Severus of Antioch and supporters of Chalcedon, over how to understand ignorance texts like Mark 13, the sun does not know the hour, and in particular, how to understand these texts without lapsing into an historian denial of the unity of Christ's person. That is, without implying that the human speaker of these words is anyone other than the Logos himself made flesh. This dispute was sparked by a small group known to scholars as the Anuetai, the unknowers, led by a deacon named Themistius who were said to attribute various sorts of ignorance to Christ. This dispute put the Chalcedonians of the time, including the emperor himself, on the defensive. The question still had currency at the turn of the seventh century when Gregory the Great, picking up the views of Eulogius, the patriarch of Alexandria, wrote a letter repudiating the Anuete in the name of the Latin patristic tradition. Only with the rise of scholasticism, though, does Jesus' human knowledge become a standard theological topic and sustained reflection about its nature become routine within the Chalcedonian tradition of the West. Scholastic theology developed to the point where it normally attributed several kinds of human knowledge to Jesus, including an acquired or, an acquired or experimental knowledge, like that of other viatores, you and I, but also a scientia beata, or immediate vision, which only he, among wayfarers, possesses. As far as I can tell, there is general agreement in the tradition that Jesus possesses at least these two quite distinct types of human knowledge. There's also, in medieval theology, uh, an extensive discussion of his infused knowledge, but we won't pursue uh, that for the moment. There's general agreement in the tradition that Jesus possesses at least these two types of knowledge, beatific or immediate vision of God and experimental or acquired knowledge. It seems not to have been questioned, at least not in a thematic way, by early Protestantism or Protestant scholasticism in the 16th and 17th century. Because it was the subject neither of intramural nor extramural dispute, the Catholic magisterium offers very little teaching on it until the 20th century. With the Enlightenment, Protestant theology had begun to deny that Jesus had anything like an immediate vision of God in his earthly life, usually in connection with a rejection or radical reconceiving of the traditional doctrine of the Incarnation, which is not a path followed by every Protestant theologian. Within the framework of the teaching that Jesus did have the immediate vision of God throughout his earthly life, there was extensive discussion of his human knowledge in Catholic theology in the first half of the 20th century leading up uh, to Vatican II a discussion that often took place in uneasy dialogue with the modern notion that self-consciousness is constitutive of personal identity. So the question of how many consciousnesses Jesus had or how many forms of consciousness he had 
was discussed rather intensely in the first half of the 20th century. Only since Vatican II, however, have some, or thereabouts, have some Catholic theologians maintained that Jesus simply lacked this scientia beata, this beatific knowledge, until his resurrection at the earliest. St. Thomas Aquinas, to turn now to the common doctor, is a particularly influential advocate of the traditional view in its scholastic form. He thinks Jesus' possession of the beatific vision follows clearly from the most basic principles of the church's faith in the incarnation. More precisely, the incarnation of the logos requires that the human being who is God incarnate receive the supreme grace possible for a human creature. This, of course, based on John 1.14. He is the Father's only Son, full of grace. Equally, saving grace in us, in its totality, saving grace in us must always be a sharing in his unique and intrinsic plenitude, St. Thomas asserts, affirms. Again, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Both of these passages that from John 1 that St. Thomas quotes um, in his own treatment of Christ's human knowledge and indeed quotes as basic uh, to his discussion. Essential to Jesus' fullness of grace is not only the greatest possible love for God, his fullness of grace includes the perfection of charity, but also the greatest possible knowledge of God, face-to-face -face vision. Grace gives us both love and knowledge. It gives us the perfection of both the will and the intellect. And Jesus' fullness of grace requires the full perfection of both. The former, namely love, is dependent on the latter, namely knowledge, uh, since we cannot love what we do not know. It will be useful to look a bit more closely at why St. Thomas thinks Jesus' direct human vision of God is necessary, both soteriologically and Christologically. The main argument St. Thomas gives for the common view that the human soul of Jesus enjoys the immediate vision of God is in fact soteriological. He reasons as follows. The final goal of all human life is the immediate vision of God. That being the case, every human being is as such capable of receiving this vision. No one can have as their and what they are incapable of attaining. Each of us exists in the Aristotelian terms that St. Thomas employs with a potency for the beatific vision. That's part of what it means to say that we are created in the image of God. Scripture teaches, Thomas continues, that any of us who actually attains the vision for which we were made receives it from the human being Jesus or from Jesus in his humanity. St. Thomas refers in his discussion of this particularly to Hebrews 2.10, the one through whom and for whom all things exist has led many sons to glory. Since Jesus causes the beatific vision in any other human being who comes to have it, he must possess, possess that vision in the best or most perfect possible way. And this means, St. Thomas argues, that he himself can never have been in potency 
to the Visio Dei, but must have always enjoyed it fully. As the human being who alone can give the beatific vision to others, who can reduce their potency for it to act, this vision must belong to him intrinsically as an inherent feature of his unique personal identity and constitution. In St. Thomas's own formulation, quote, it's a rather lengthy quotation, what is in potency is reduced to act by that which is in act, as it is necessary for that by which other things become hot to be hot itself. The human being is in potency to the knowledge of the blessed, the immediate vision possessed by the blessed, which consists in the vision of God and is ordered to this as to its end. For the rational creature is capable of this blessed vision insofar as it is in the image of God. Human beings are reduced to this end of blessedness, or we could say blessedness is actualized in us by the humanity of Christ. Notice the stress, by the humanity of Christ, according to Hebrews 2.10, the passage I quoted a moment ago. He has led many sons to glory. Therefore, St. Thomas continues, it was necessary that this knowledge consisting in the very vision of God belong to the human being Christ in the most excellent way because the cause is always, must always be more potent than that which it causes. And those of you Thomists in the audience who want to run to the original text, this is Tertia Pars 9, Article 2, the Corpus. Now to this argument for the necessity that Jesus, if he is to communicate beatitude to us, must possess it intrinsically, himself, that is to say, never have been in potency to it. Uh, St. Thomas then adds an important corollary. Our own enjoyment of the immediate vision of God, when it comes, our own beatitude, is, an entire, is entirely a participation in Jesus' own vision, his own visio. It's not simply the case that he causes in, it in us, but he causes it in us in a particular way by giving us a share in what he already possesses. In this respect, the beatific vision is like everything else which comes to us by grace alone. It does not simply run parallel to Jesus' apprehension of the face of the Father, qualitatively similar to his, but discrete from it. Rather, our vision remains forever dependent on his, not only like it, but actively caused by it. In other words, our vision is a participation in his similar and caused by. This is part of what it means for St. Thomas to say that Jesus is head of the church. He writes, quote, grace is received in the soul of Christ in the most eminent way. Therefore, it belongs to him that from this most eminent grace that he receives, this same grace flows to others. That is what it means to be head. Therefore, the personal grace by which the soul of Christ is just is in its essence one and the same as the grace by which he justifies others as head of the church. It differs only conceptually, secundum rationem, end quote. The same goes, in fact, for the dim apprehension or vision of God that we have in this life by faith through a mirror dimly, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It, too, while not yet the perfection, of course, that we 
yearn for is a participation, although an inadequate and perfectible participation, in Jesus' own immediate knowledge of the Father. So Aquinas' primary argument, it seems to me, for Jesus' intrinsic possession of the immediate vision of God is soteriological. He can only save us, that is to say, communicate this vision to us if he himself possesses it in this unique and complete way. Elsewhere, St. Thomas offers a more directly Christological argument to the same conclusion, that Jesus possesses the vision inherently, though I think for him it is secondary to the soteriological argument. The more Christological argument runs like this. The human soul of Christ is as close to God as it is possible for any creature to be, since it is hypostatically united to a divine person. The human soul is personally united to the Logos. The blessed in heaven are united to God in a less intense way, namely by grace rather than by hypostatic union. Yet the Beati enjoy the immediate vision of God and by it reach the term or goal of their human existence. A fortiori then, the human soul of Jesus must have the immediate vision of God as long as it is personally united to the word, his soul. And of course, it's always personally united to the word. Jesus' human soul never exists except as personally united to the word. So St. Thomas argues in this way uh, in the Compendium Theologiae, quote, receiving among all creatures the highest perfection of the divine vision, the soul of Christ fully perceives all the divine works and the reasons for them, whatever these works are, were, or will be. As a result, his human soul illumines not only human beings, but even the highest angels. Therefore, the apostle says in Colossians 2 that in him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And in Hebrews 4, all things lie bare and open to his eyes, his Jesus human eyes. Suppose, to elaborate St. Thomas's point, suppose on the contrary that Jesus did not possess the direct vision of God intrinsically, and whatever that vision entails, such as full certainty about his mission and his identity as son of the Father. Suppose that he instead received it at some point in his life, such as his resurrection, a common position these days, as I mentioned, after having previously not enjoyed that immediate vision of God. In that case, he would, like the rest of us, have lived, first of all, in potency for the immediate vision of God, or apprehension of God, and would have needed to receive it from someone else who possessed it intrinsically. Perhaps the Logos, perhaps the persons of the Trinity conjointly. The crucial point is that it would not then be correct to say that the human being, Jesus, gives us the vision of God, or that the human being, Jesus, could give the vision of God to us. He could not be the source or cause of that blessedness in which the fulfillment of our life's final purpose consists, nor could our possession of it be a participation in his. Rather, he, like the rest of us, would receive it from some source or cause personally distinct from himself, in whose possession of the visio he, like us, would share. 
But this is simply to say that Jesus himself is not the universal savior, but one among the saved, if perhaps the first in line. As such, he could be at most the occasion or channel of our salvation, which was accomplished by another, and for whom we would then need to look. Rather than being a dispensable piece of scholastic arcana, then, Jesus' immediate vision of God throughout his earthly life, throughout the whole course of his human existence, seems rooted in very fundamental soteriological principles. As I mentioned at the outset, this conclusion is widely rejected in contemporary theology, including Catholic theology. Three main objections are typically lodged against it. First objection, it is, in, it is incompatible with the full humanity of Jesus Christ and is at best an implicit monophysitism. Whatever we might want to say about the vision of God in a state beyond this present life, beyond the spatio-temporal existence that we know, the objection holds that no human being in our space and time, and even more in our world of sin and death, could see God face to face. Why, though, in reply, should that be the case? If God the Son assumes our nature, it must be possible for that assumed nature to exist in any state or condition of which that nature as such is inherently capable. Hypostatic union with a divine person is, after all, already the highest and most perfect condition in which our nature could exist, or for which it has a potency. On this principle, there are two limits. Any state or condition of the human nature of the incarnate word must be compatible first with a personal union of that nature with the word, and second with the saving mission on account of which the son or word assumes our nature in the first place. If human nature is inherently capable of the direct vision of God, then it is possible for the humanity of the incarnate word to exist in that condition. If our, hate, if our nature is held to be not capable of this, not capable of the immediate vision of God, then of course there's nothing left to talk about in Jesus' case or any other. But what doesn't work is to say that our nature is capable of this but cannot enjoy it no matter how intimately united with God it is in our present spatio-temporal condition. that the humanity of Jesus in fact exists in the condition of possessing this vision, Fulgentius suggests and Aquinas argues, is not only compatible with his existence as the incarnate word and with his saving mission, but is required by both. In fact, it seems as though it is, if anything, the objection that calls into question Jesus' humanity, his full possession of our nature, not the thesis. It is perplexing to suppose that Jesus fully shares our nature and that our nature is capable of the vision of God. And yet God simply cannot give this vision to a human being in our space and time. Cannot give it indeed even to his own human soul, at least until it is risen from the dead. If the latter is really true, it suggests not so much that Jesus fully shares our nature, if the objection were correct, it would suggest not so much that Jesus fully shares our nature 
as that the nature he assumes, unlike ours, is not inherently capable of the vision of God, but needs some fundamental alteration, such as one brought about by death and resurrection, in order to be genuinely receptive to this condition or to this perfection. Second objection. Jesus' possession of the vision of God in his pre-Easter life is incompatible with the reality of its human suffering, and especially with the agony and abandonment of the cross. No one, the objection goes, who saw God face to face could suffer as the Gospels clearly attest that Jesus did. To attribute the immediate vision of God to the unrisen Jesus, to the crucified undercuts his solidarity with us. At just the point where, so a lot of current theology assumes, it is most needed, namely in his subjection to our experience of hopeless suffering and divine abandonment. Now, unlike the first objection, St. Thomas and other advocates of the traditional view think this second objection, that Jesus possession of the beatific vision is incompatible with his suffering, they thought this objection was a serious one and gave it a lot of thought. Aquinas' own solution to abbreviate considerably is basically to say that there is no contradiction or incoherence in saying that Jesus' whole human soul suffers in one respect and not in another. And so St. Thomas holds that Jesus undergoes the greatest of all suffering, a standard position following Lamentations 1, whose suffering is like my suffering, while at the same time enjoying the immediate vision of God. Here the distinction between the essence of the soul and its powers is basic. Thomas deploys this distinction to argue that even on the cross, the highest power of Jesus' soul continues to see God directly, and this is the cause not quoting St. Thomas, of sadness, but of delight and joy, while at the same time all the lower powers of the soul, those which mediate the deliverances of the senses, cause the greatest suffering. But it is not, it is not as though Jesus' soul is sliced in two and the upper half does not know what the lower half is going through. The whole soul is equally the subject, this is the crucial conceptual point, the whole soul is equally the subject of all its powers. So the whole soul suffers most greatly, and at the same time the whole soul rejoices with inexpressible joy. We might, Thomas notes, suppose that it is impossible simultaneously to suffer and rejoice, he considers this objection explicitly. But there's no contradiction here, he argues, for the simple reason that while the same soul wholly suffers and wholly rejoices, it does so in irreducibly different respects with regard to different powers that it possesses, and nothing prevents contraries from being true of the same individual as long as, they, as, long as or if they belong to it in different ways. Now to us, this may seem psychologically implausible, even absurd. However, it is not difficult to find everyday analogs to what St. Thomas is talking about. Think of a person like the late physicist Stephen Hawking who suffered from great and agonizing bodily liabilities, yet at the same time evidently found great joy in the adventure of thought, even in the midst of his suffering. 
or think closer to home of many Christian martyrs, including some in our own time, who have undergone the cruelest tortures, often preceded by long periods in which to anticipate the agony to come, yet have lived and died in serenity and joy out of love for Christ. They had not yet obtained the beatific vision, but still were able to combine extreme suffering with interior joy. Evidently, this is psychologically possible, even if most of us may find it hard to imagine ourselves in that position. All the more, then, should it be possible for Jesus to unite suffering like no other with the face-to-face vision of God. In fact, it seems as though he can suffer more than anyone else just because he alone in our space and time sees God's face, not in spite of the fact that he sees it. This is, again, a standard idea in scholastic treatments of this, that Jesus' intensity of suffering requires his immediate vision of God. Whether Jesus' solidarity with our suffering, which of course is real, should be thought to include an experience of divine abandonment or even damnation, as some contemporary theology holds, is another matter. This sort of solidarity with the human lot, insofar as I can see, is firmly rejected in patristic and medieval theology. The tradition is unwilling to go this far, not simply in order to maintain Jesus' immediate vision of God, but for basic soteriological and Christological reasons, including those usually taken as premises to imply Jesus' possession of the visio. Part of our difficulty in following St. Thomas and others at this point may stem from the assumption that we know in advance what it would be like for a human being in our space and time to have the vision of God. Not, we probably presume, like a crucified and abandoned innocent. Surely, though, we cannot tell with any clarity from our present condition and our own experience, marred epistemically and otherwise by sin and its consequences, what such a person would look like or such an experience would be like. We have to learn that so far as we presently can from the incarnate word himself. This is part of the point, I think, of St. Thomas's claim that from Mary's womb to the cross, Jesus is both viator and comprehensor, one who suffers and one who sees God. This is true of him alone, and we err if we suppose that our own knowledge and experience can decide for us that he must be one or the other, but not both. A third contemporary objection holds that attributing the immediate vision of God to Jesus in his earthly life is, and perhaps beyond it indeed, is unbiblical. Again, text I've referred to a couple of times, of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, the hour of the last judgment. According to standard, though increasingly contested, historical assumptions about the New Testament, this saying comes from the earliest gospel and represents a very early stratum of the synoptic or gospel tradition. If anything can be said with decent historical warrant to come from Jesus' own lips, so the argument goes, it is a saying like this. Passages which seem to speak of Jesus' face-to-face knowledge of God, like Matthew 11, no one knows the Father but the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. To say nothing of John 1, to which we've referred several times, these are, according to a standard argument, later theological glosses on the earliest traditions, earliest layers of tradition, and have little or no historical value. Historical criticism of the New Testament, according to this objection, thus discredits the traditional idea that Jesus has the immediate vision of God throughout his earthly life. To be sure, the motives for this objection, as I mentioned before, are religious and not just historical or scientific. It dovetails neatly with the theological commitments of those who make these arguments. Like the previous objection about Jesus' suffering, this appeal to Mark 13 and the ignorance of the Son about the Day of Judgment was a standard question in the medieval school. Not untypically, Thomas Aquinas argues that there are several different ways of responding to it. The one he evidently prefers takes does not know, the Son does not know the hour, in this case to mean does not cause us to know. That takes a little thought to figure out what he's saying here. Does not know means does not make us know. This saying of Jesus that he does not know the hour of the last judgment needs to be read, St. Thomas argues, in light of texts like Acts 1, where the apostles question the risen Jesus about the last things, clearly assuming that he does know about them. He replies that these things are not for them to know. It is not for you to know the times the Father has appointed by his own authority. So Thomas argues when Jesus says in Mark 13, quoting St. Thomas now, only the Father knows not the Son, he does not mean that he himself, the incarnate Son, fails to know, but that the Father has in fact imparted this knowledge to him, but not in such a way that he will impart it to anyone else before the time comes. This is in Tertiopars 10. This was already an old argument by the time Aquinas used it. It's in Augustine and Gregory the Great, among others. But it seems so plainly against the clear drift of a passage like Mark 13 that it bears a bit more reflection. Think, St. Thomas suggests, again following a long tradition, of a passage like God's commendation of Abraham in Genesis 22 after the binding of Isaac. Now I know that you fear God, says God to Abraham. We cannot seriously suppose, Aquinas argues, St. Thomas argues, that before Abraham put forth the knife to slay his son, God did not know what Abraham's attitude toward him really was. When God says, now I know, since he must in fact always have known, when he says, now I know, it must mean that he has caused Abraham to know, as he never did before, what it means to fear God. Now I know in this context means this tradition of interpretation argues, which St. Thomas accepts, in this context, now I know means, despite the surface grammar of the statement, now I have made you to know. The same applies, Thomas says, to the statement, the Son does not know but only the Father, but in the opposite way, that is, in the negative. We cannot seriously suppose that the incarnate Son himself, to whom all judgment has been entrusted by the Father, according to Mark 13 itself, does not know the hour the Father has appointed. So when he says the son does not know, he must mean the son will not make you to know. To modern biblical scholarship, an exegetical move like this seems far-fetched at best. But the main reason it seems so is not that modern historical knowledge of the origins of the New Testament 
goes well beyond what was available in the 13th century at the time of St. Thomas. No doubt it does, but the deeper source of the disagreement between traditional and modern readings of a text like Mark 13, 32, is I think this. Traditional interpreters like St. Thomas are committed to the coherence, the plenary coherence, we could say, the full coherence of scripture. They did not feel free, as historical critics generally do, to see passages of the New Testament as simply inconsistent with one another so that we have to choose which one might be true. Historical criticism typically takes such inconsistency to be the inevitable result of the diversity of historical traditions informing the New Testament books, of which writers like St. Thomas knew little. But even if he had possessed modern historical critics, a modern historical critic's knowledge on this score, St. Thomas would not have felt free to read the New Testament the way they do. Given the character of scripture as a privileged medium of divine teaching, he would always find it necessary to interpret apparently incompatible passages of scripture as coherent with one another in the way Christian interpreters had done since the beginning. It's this commitment, not historical ignorance, that explains why he interprets Mark 13 the way that he does. So it will be compatible with other texts which clearly say that Jesus does know the day and the hour. So how can we plausibly interpret a text which seems to say that he doesn't? In fact, the strongest objection to St. Thomas's reasoning on this matter, at least on one crucial point, is not modern or contemporary, one of those that I have just discussed, but medieval. John Duns Scotus argues in his commentaries on Book 3 of the Sentences, Distinction 2, that God need not give the immediate vision of his essence even to his own human soul, that is, to the human nature united hypostatically to him in the person of the Son. There's no contradiction, Scotus argues, in a divine person uniting a created nature to himself, even a rational nature, yet not conferring on that nature its ultimate fruition, namely beatitude by way of vision. The vision of his essence can only be freely conferred by God upon any creature, including his own human soul. Along with every other relation of God to creatures, the immediate vision of his essence Scotus argues, is always and ultimately contingent on God's will to bestow it. Here, as in many other places, Scotus finds in the views of predecessors like St. Thomas implausible and spurious claims about necessity that need to be uprooted if we are to truly appreciate the depth of God's generosity towards us, how much God has given us freely and not necessarily. God could have, in Scotus's view, undertaken the impoverished incarnation without the visio, which is what has become widespread in contemporary Catholic theology, but this would have been less generous, Scotus argues, than what he has actually done, namely giving us an incarnation with the immediate vision. Grasping that even an incarnate God didn't have to do this for us only increases our awareness of his generosity in actually doing it. So Scotus finds metaphysically oriented Christological arguments for Christ's possession of the beatific vision unconvincing, not that he doesn't believe it, he completely believes it, he doesn't, the question is how does he argue for it and how does he think it can be persuasively argued for. Scotus's direct target is Henry of Ghent, but his objections bear on Thomas's Christological argument as well. 
However, with what I have called St. Thomas' soteriological argument, I think Scotus would agree. That is, both St. Thomas and Blessed Scotus assume that God has in fact decided to confer the beatific vision upon human beings, not one by one, not starting from scratch in each case, but in such a way that all who have the vision receive it as a participation in the enjoyment of it by another. All that is, except the single human being who shares his possession of this vision with the rest of us. That one, namely Jesus in the actual divinely ordained order of things, cannot have received the vision from another, but must simply possess it. He especially cannot have received it at some point past the beginning of his own personal history. Rather, the immediate vision of God just goes with being this particular human being, as in general what is participated must possess intrinsically any qualities in which others participate and not participate them possess them, I should say, not possess them by participation in something else. That God has decided to give us beatitude by participation in Jesus' own human vision of him is, of course, contingent. But for Scotus, too, it would seem, given this contingent divine decision, Jesus possesses the beatific vision necessarily in order that we may possess it through union with him. In Thomas's terms, we have here a case of necessity given an assumption, necessity ex suppositione. Given the supposition that God is determined to give us beatitude only as a participation in the beatitude of Jesus himself, non-contingent truths about participation then take hold. To conclude, much is at stake then when it comes to Christ's human knowledge. His saving work depends on it. He could not be the savior whom God has given us in the scripturally narrated economy of salvation unless he had the fullest possible human knowledge, even to the point of the immediate vision of God throughout his earthly life. What is at stake, we could say to sum up, is the reality of Christ's personal saving love for each of us, for each human being. That love is personal precisely where it is enacted once and for all on the cross at the heart of the Paschal mystery. It does not simply become personal only when the saving cross is behind him and he is safely risen from the dead. It is not after the fact that Jesus first learns for whom he has died. Paul the Apostle says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself, as the context makes quite clear, precisely on the cross. But Paul, as he himself emphasizes, did not know Jesus according to the flesh, that is, in his earthly life. How then could Jesus love him and give himself for Paul on the cross. Only if he saw Paul as he saw each of us in his face-to-face -face vision of the Father, precisely in the Garden of Gethsemane and on Calvary. Pope Pius XII underlines just this point in a passage from the encyclical Mystici Corpus Christi concerned with Jesus' possession of the beatific vision in his earthly life quoting Pius XII, but such a most loving knowledge as the divine redeemer from the first moment of his incarnation bestowed upon us 
surpasses any zealous power of the human mind. Since through that beatific vision, which he began to enjoy when he had hardly been conceived in the womb of the mother of God, he has the members of his mystical body always and constantly present before him, and he embraces all with his redeeming love. He has the members of his mystical body always and constantly present to him and embraces all with his redeeming love. Surely his successor, Pius's successor, Pope Benedict, is right to insist that any adequate appreciation of the person of Jesus must grasp that he is in truth the longed-for prophet, greater than Moses, the one who sees the face of God. Thank you.